1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel, and today I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Eric Bennett. Professor Eric Bennett is a professor of English at Providence College in Rhode Island, And he published a very, very interesting book called Workshops of Empire, Stegner, Eagle, and American Creative Writing During the Cold War. And I'm really honored to be able to talk to him about his book. Uh, Eric, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. I'm honored to be here.
1: Uh, can you please just briefly introduce yourself, tell us uh, about your field of expertise, and more importantly, how the idea of this book came to you?
0: Um, sure thing. I Well, I'm from the United States. I was born in Michigan. I uh, did a bachelor's in English and an uh, MFA in creative writing and then a PhD in English. Um, my area of specialization was 20th century kind of institutional histories, and and the book comes from a dissertation I wrote at Harvard University when I was there. Mm. So the the inspiration for it was, like most projects, somewhat biographical. Um, I did my undergraduate also at Harvard. And when I was there as an English major in the mid-90s, I just felt exhilarated by all the different levels on which uh, my professors engaged with literature. And so it was a uh, rich education. And I, um, when I did the creative writing degree a couple of years later at the University of Iowa, um, I loved that too. And I was surrounded by brilliant people and I had very fine instructors. And I was struck by how narrow the parameters were for the discussion about what writing was and what it could be. And it was, there was a just kind of strange disparity between the openness and just the kind of philosophical and intellectual breadth of what I experienced vis-a-vis literature um, at Harvard and what I found in the workshop classrooms at the writing program at Iowa. So that, that was the kind of biographical piece. The, the more academic piece was when I was reading around in older texts from the University of Iowa, uh, there was an anthology of literature that had been produced at the Iowa Writing Program in the 1960s, and the director of the Iowa Writing Program in his acknowledgments thanked people who I thought were strange to be sponsors of a creative writing program and that included some philanthropic foundations and some conservative midwestern businesses but strangest of all was Averill Harriman who was a major player in the democratic party in the 1950s he ran for president twice he had served under FDR um, during world war ii and before that during the new deal and I thought, why is Avril Harriman sponsoring a creative writing program in the Midwest? And so that was the initial thread that I started to tug on as I worked mm. on the project. So
1: uh, before we start talking about the book, can you briefly tell us, maybe in a, in a minute or so, the
0: main idea of the book? Uh, sure thing. So Workshops of Empire argues that the creative writing programs that emerged full-fledged in the 1940s and 1950s in the united states uh were not simply laboratories of kind of pure literary engagement but reflected in their pedagogy and poetics attitudes toward literature that were heavily informed by um the cold war
1: and and i guess it's a perfect introduction because that was exactly my next question in in the book you start you, you talk about uh a new vision, a function of literature, which developed this, uh, developed after, during and also after the Second World War to save liberal, liberal democracies. And you also talk about the idea of a new humanism, which was developed again during that time. Can you talk about these ideas? What was this vision of uh, literature or new humanism to save liberal democracies? And why did it develop during the Cold
0: War? Okay, so... I would say there were visions and not a single vision of literature, and that the creative writing programs kind of emerged in that atmosphere. Um, and this was a global phenomenon, it wasn't limited at all to the discipline of creative writing, but the ideological havoc and the great destruction of World War II. Gave the humanities strangely high standing in the United States and also also in Western Europe um, after 1945. So the United Nations had programs that really, um, through through UNESCO under the leadership of Julian Huxley, um, considered the softer aspects of culture perhaps a thing that would help heal the globe from the epic conflict between fascism and communism. That was the kind of main gist of of World War II in Europe. So the Julian Huxley's version was we can we can have a global community wherever everybody shares what they have, and the commonalities discovered in culture will kind of knit us together. Um, The American form of this was looking to literature as an antidote to ideology ideology meaning the clear, fast-moving creeds, whether they were far left or far right, that were embodied in Stalin's uh, USSR, Hitler's Germany. And so the idea is literature is more complex, it's more slow, it's more intricate, it doesn't allow you to have beliefs easily and readily, uh, but it it makes you pause and think and hesitate, and that that kind of hesitation uh, was exactly what human beings needed after the righteous certitudes of nazism and communism and italian fascism so the creative writing programs emerged at this moment when there was the thought that the best thing you can do for the sake of global political stability is is tell your own story and on all its distinctiveness and difference and kind of slow moving particularity
1: and uh And and that also influenced the development of uh, programs such as Master of Fine Arts. Is that right? Um,
0: Yes. So the the initial poets and fiction writers who set up on college campuses graduate programs where people interested in becoming writers could share their writing with other writers, they were um, kind of deeply ensconced in this worldview and ambitious enough men to think that creative writing might have a place uh, in this kind of larger geopolitical picture. Uh, And the the two main players in my study, and also I think in in historical fact, uh, were Paul Engel, who directed the Iowa program from the early 40s into the mid-60s. He was a poet from Iowa Uh, who really was ambitious in what he thought poetry might be able to do. And then Wallace Stegner, who was also a Midwesterner, who directed the writing program at Stanford starting in the mid-1940s. Stegner was a little less of a cold warrior than Engel. Um, I think he was a little smarter, but I think he shared a lot of the attitudes toward the salutary intellectual or ind- individualistic focus of literature um, centered on the, the lone small guy who had the, the righteous thing to say that was too complex to be reduced to a party platform and i'm using gendered language on pur- purpose this was a very male phenomenon in the 40s and 50s you yeah, know. yeah.
1: Uh, we'll talk about these two uh figures but there is uh, you also talk about erring babbitt's idea of new human humanism and yeah, it, how it appealed to writing programs in stanford and iowa what was his role in uh in the development of these programs
0: yeah so this this turns into real inside baseball but it's fascinating to me um, Irving Babbitt was a literature professor at Harvard whose uh, heyday was a generation or two earlier. Um, he was a figure of the 1890s and beginning of the 20th century, and he stood in resistance to the increasingly scientific emphasis of the modern research university. And so he had seen Harvard transform from effectively a dying seminary um, into a major world player as a research university modeled on German universities. And he was on the side of the dying seminary, Um, but he wasn't religious at all. And his faith was world literature. And he thought that reading books in a fairly straightforward way, would improve the kind of ethical excellence of the person doing the reading. He sampled very widely and, again, without religious creed, really uh, argued strongly for this idea that um, if you read your Aeschylus, if you read your Dante, if you read your Dickens, all of these books will somehow cohere into the uh, ethical worldview. Um, he was he was very big on self-restraint and he thought we could learn a kind of virtuous self-restraint from reading great books. Um, so he's in the distant past behind creative writing programs and and the connection between him and these programs that emerged, he had a sto- uh, a student named Norman Furster who went on to direct um, a consolidated uh, liberal arts graduate school at um, University of Iowa, a, a School of Letters. Uh, that bundled different foreign languages with English and literature. Um, Furster was brought into the University of Iowa in 1929 precisely to resist the scientific tendencies or to kind of counterbalance the scientific uh, tendencies of the state university there. And his difference from Babbitt was that he was an American literature guy. He thought that you could read... Hawthorne and Melville and Emerson and they would help make you a better person and you didn't read them as a philologist or a literary historian but you read them as a person trying to be a good person and so he established graduate study in these um, along these lines and he was the direct mentor of Paul Engel and Wallace Stegner both who were graduate students with him and his he wasn't uh, a creative writer himself, but he thought creative writing might be this a part of this ethical formation that could come from great books. And both Engel and Stegner took the creative writing piece and ran with it.
1: And uh, you also talk about the role of Rockefeller uh, Rockefeller Rockefeller Foundation in establishing these programs. Uh, how did they support universities or in magazines to to develop master of fine arts? you know, or in general to promote this new vision of literature to promote liberal democracy? Um,
0: It's a story of convergence. The Rockefeller Foundation's initial concern, which emerges very strongly in the 1930s, is to combat manipulation of the masses through mass media uh, propaganda. So in the 1920s and in the 1930s, radio uh, was a new thing. And radio broadcasts played uh, an essential role in the kind of mass mobilization of Italian fascists and uh, Nazis in Germany and also uh, Soviets. And as a uh, the philanthropic face of an oil company in the United States, the Rockefeller Foundation was not thrilled about um, the corporate economic corporatism of Nazi Germany or the private or the um, liquidation of private enterprise in the Soviet Union. And and so they had a very vested interest in fighting um, these ideologies, even before they turned into war that led to war. Um, And after World War Two, Rockefeller Foundation was all the more resolved to think about how mass media could propagandize the masses and turn them into dangerous mobs. Um, it was a very elitist sense um, um, it was a problem it was it was interfering from above. It was thinking about how can we control these things. But I, um, the projects they ended up sponsoring in the 40s and 50s were literary and they thought, well, let's let's help literature stand as an alternative kind of media. Uh, to simplistic radio broadcasts, and television was emerging then too. And so they started to uh, underwrite little literary magazines in the United States, and among the beneficiaries of their largesse uh, were these writing programs, and Engel and Stegner both benefited from Rockefeller Foundation and were um, given grants either to support students under their charge or uh, their own activities themselves and these programs were upstarts they were scrappy little sideshows in the post-war university but once they get forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars from the rockefeller foundation they look much more impressive in their local community and i mean it gives a sense of ascendancy to get that kind of underwriting
1: and uh i'm also Cur- curious to know more about Iowa's writers' workshop programs. Can you talk about uh, those writers' programs or writers' workshops? How they started?
0: So they really did emerge out of Norman Furster's mentorship of um, uh, certain of his graduate students in the 1930s, including Stegner and Engel. There were there was creative writing on the books as a course at Iowa before that, and so you can start the history earlier, but but for my purposes, the important moment was when uh, Engel and Stegner became conscious of such training uh, through Furster. And the format that the early classes took, uh, as a graduate student, you would meet and you would share your writing and have it evaluated by your classmates and by an instructor. And that was the model from the beginning. And it's remained the model ever since. Things have changed. The class size in the uh, 40s and 50s might have gotten a little larger than it, I think it is now at the University of Iowa, which is still up and running as, as a program. And in the initial days, um, the work would be read, read aloud in the classroom. And everybody would hear it and then discuss it. And I think now people read privately and then show up and discuss. Consistent all the way throughout, though, has been this idea that the uh, or this this practice, this protocol that the person who wrote the thing sits there silently and listens to what's being said about his or her piece of writing. But the uh, the the Iowa program achieved prestige early on from Paul Engel's hustling. Um, he had some successful early students in the 40s and 50s, and it this idea of uh graduate students writing creatively was novel and it received media coverage in the 1950s henry loose publisher of time and life magazines it got on his radar and so he would write up kind of quaint feel-good stories about those crazy writers out on the iowa campus um kind of anti-beatnik sort of slant on the Iowa program
1: uh, and let's talk about these two characters, Stegner and Engel. Uh, first, uh, Paul Engel. How did he? You, you talk about his ideas, his his attempts to kind of debunk this idea that the poet is, uh, rebellious, lonely genius who cannot really be tamed, in a, and be a part of an educational institution. Can you talk about him, this idea, and also his uh his vision of this creative writing classes? You you call him a cold war warrior why is that
0: uh yeah so he he in the sense that he read the newspaper non-stop wrote letters to people in washington about what was going on uh in terms of the soviet union and india um he, he was he was a self-appointed cold warrior and there were lots of these types in the u.s people who fancied themselves engaged and committed to the american side of the mm-hmm. um soft war against the the soviets um he was also an entrepreneur of sorts and a real opportunist and he saw an opportunity in raising money for his writing program from individuals and businesses in the u.s that were anti-communist and they weren't hard to come by in the 50s and so he would give fundraising pitches to the businessmen in Cedar Rapids or Iowa City or Chicago or New York saying this writing program embodies the best of American free expression, shows how different we are from um, the Soviets who have programmatic art dictated by Moscow, Uh, we support people in their freedom, can you give us money. Uh, What he needed to do, though, was make clear that the writers he was hosting uh, on the campus in Iowa City were very different from those left-leaning, fellow-traveling communist writers of the 1930s. And in the 1930s, a great many American writers were either um, communist or more likely just left-wing sympathetic, and he had to give at the very least a centrist pitch. And it often kind of veered into a kind of right-wing pitch, even though the writers on the Iowa campus were not conservative in the sense of uh, um, being really gung-ho for – I mean, they probably voted for Eisenhower, might have voted – but – he made a stauncher anti-communist pitch than would have been in line probably with the ideology of many of his students, um, but it was a great way to make money in the '50s.
1: And uh, what was his idea why, of l- a poetry in in spreading American liberal democracy?
0: Um, I think he so his first couple of volumes of poetry were very patriotic. And he he uh, became a it was kind of a flash in the pan celebrity, but he became famous um, in the early 30s for a book called American Song that was Whitman-esque in its panoramic survey of the United States geographically and kind of culturally um, and it it the collection of poetry, It was very, very long form poetry. These weren't tight little lyrics. It was, it was expansive. It was iambic pentameter, um, but it was blank first. He didn't rhyme, but it was this, this kind of gushing really uh, wide angle picture of the United States as it struggled against the great depression, but it was, it was not a kind of heartbroken picture of economic destitution. It was a, we can do it guys uh, kind of poem and as the depression deepened he himself um acquired really strong communist sympathies in a way that happened so fast um he was accused of being kind of superficial in those commitments and in general looking back on him he seems politically superficial to me he was not a deep deep thinker or, or ideologue he was he he coasted on the surface of whatever the kind of prevailing currents were Um, But he wrote in the late 30s, a book of almost communist verse and both volumes, American Song and um, the later book, Break the Heart, uh, Break the Heart's Anger. um, uh, Suggested that he thought a poet could be somebody speaking to the globe for the globe in a way that kind of negotiated major problems for the globe Uh, They seem a little delusional now. I mean, poets don't publish a collection of poetry uh, and think that they're going to affect geopolitical balance. Um, But I think he got so famous so quickly at such a young age in the early 40s with American Song that he had this idea that a, a poet could speak for the nation and he never gave it up. I mean, I think his fundraising activities for his creative writing program later preserved that kind of youthful hope he'd been given that poets really mattered to planet Earth.
1: And uh, one thing I found really interesting about him when it was about you know his recruitment of students he, he was not only American students but also foreign students as well.
0: Um, as as soon as the the uh, program got up and really took its its modern form after World War II, he was looking for writers from other places that he could bring uh, to the US to kind of be immersed in um, the practice. And so early success story was um, Adalberto Tiempo and his his wife, um, Edith, who were from the Philippines. And they came to the workshop, I think, in the late forties, and then returned to the Philippines and at Silliman University, set up a writing program that runs until this day. And... At least last I saw it written about embodied the spirit of writing that I describe historically in my book. And there's a Filipina scholar named Constantina Cruz who's written excellent um, um scholarly stuff on the contemporary face of the writing program at Silliman University, um in the context of this kind of Cold War history. And so that that program. Um, has marg- marginalized anything other than writing in English and has kind of preserved some of the new critical um, practices of writing as they existed at Iowa, at least according to Cruz's account. She's, she's the only person I've, I've read reading about this. So that was that was Engel's dream that he could export American literary attitudes and it actually happened in one place. Um, but from the 40s on, he looked everywhere he could across the globe for writers he could bring to Iowa, hoping that they would return to where they were from, carrying this, this spirit about literature to those places. And so that he had an effect on Hong Kong. I know scholars have worked on that. Uh, he had an effect on Japan. Um, he did less in terms of recruiting from Latin America. He definitely tried to get people from Eastern Europe to come. And by the 1960s, he was so committed to this international vision for what he was doing. And um, he also was absent a lot from Iowa because he was traveling trying to arrange these kind of ambassadorships. Um, He got ousted from the domestic workshop and he ended up founding a separate international program uh, devoted solely to bringing poets from elsewhere. And at at that moment in the late 60s, there was a sudden division between the international and the domestic writing programs at Iowa. Um, Engel cheerfully acted like it was a great brand new idea, but he had been doing it from the start. And I think he was saving face because he'd been shamed by being ousted from the the domestic workshops that he'd, he'd built. Um, but that international writing program goes on uh, to today and from Engel's time uh, through to very recently has received State Department funding. So it's been part of american foreign policy in a kind of soft small way um since the 1960s
1: and uh how about wallace stegner how did his approach differ from
0: paul Engle? i he, he had hopes less high or i think uh, interest less strong in uh making literature do that kind of work um but his I think by having greater integ- integrity as a writer, writing things that more people read, having a actual legitimate—I mean, Paul Engel had some initial success and then basically turned into a, a administrator and fundraiser. Whereas Stegner, his most celebrated writing came at the end of his career with *Angle of Repose* in the '70s, even though he'd been publishing fiction uh, since the '30s or '40s. Um, but he had a huge influence in the classroom. And uh, the writing seminars at Stanford are as prestigious as the Iowa Writing Program. And he was a really resolute, he was born in the Midwest, but he kind of took on an identity as a Westerner. And he wasn't unsympathetic to American Indian concerns. Um, He was a liberal And he meant well, uh, but he also celebrated a vision of the West that now in 2023 really looks like part of the Imperial American project. Um, And he had, I think many more, I didn't have more famous uh, students than Engel, but he had more students whose fame seemed to reflect his influence than I think Engel did. And so writers like Wendell Berry or uh, Edward Albee, or Larry McMurtry, who are some of the, the better-known Western or ge- geography-specific American writers, people who really dwell on place and the way that being in an American place nurtures a certain American self. Um, that really reflects Stegner's influence and is is conservative in a different way from the the kind of Cold Warrior stuff uh, I describe with Engel. Um but they seem like they seem like cousins, uh, kind of intellectually or ideologically. And one of the cousins was a little smarter.
1: And and uh, you, you talk also about a number of authors and two of my favorite authors pop up in your book, Ernest Hemingway and Henry James. What was their role in these workshops? Where do they come in about uh, when it comes to these workshops?
0: Yeah. Ernest Hemingway was a godsend. Um he was hugely popular in the 30s and 40s, and he he was on the radar of everybody, not just people who liked literature. He, the auto mechanics of Tulsa, Oklahoma, knew who Ernest Hemingway was. I mean, he uh, he was in the the magazines the same way movie stars were. Um, so he, I mean, if Engel was. Excited that poetry could matter to everybody. Hemingway gave the impression that uh, hard-boiled, masculinist American prose um, could matter to the globe. Um, and Americans definitely had that impression. I think Hemingway's one of the figures at the center of this idea of the great American novel. Like, this this guy is huge. He's like a movie star. Um, so on the celebrity level, he had... Um, A great usefulness to the writing program, specifically because their first students in 1945 were predominantly GI Bill uh, beneficiaries, men who had served for the U.S. in World War II and got fellowships to go to graduate school. And they had war experience. They had in view this almost movie star level celebrity writer. And that guy wrote simple prose that you could imitate. And what if you if you'd served in the South Pacific, if you loved what you knew about Ernest Hemingway, and if you too wanted to write your story of alienation, you just had a cookie cutter. I mean, you had the, a template or a blueprint for what it meant to be a writer and how to do it. And you didn't have to know anything about literary history or um, deeper traditions of writing. His, his, his very Simple prose style seem to be within reach uh, of emulation. Um, James is another story. I mean, he's if if Hemingway is is uh, accessible, James is inaccessible, uh, and the arguments I make about him feel a little less um, important. But but James helped professionalize modernist writing. Um, um, made it seem worthy of, made prose seem worthy of academic investigation. And so these days we don't give a second thought to English professors dealing with prose fiction. But even, even as late as the 20s or 30s, prose mattered less than poetry to the academy. And certainly in the 19th century, the idea that you would make prose fiction part of your curriculum would have been an outlying idea. Uh, so James James in his prefaces, which which um, talk about how to write or how to revise, and in his novels, which are are masterpieces of difficulty, um, made writing seem sufficiently academic that the study of creative writing too could be academic. Kind of yeah.
1: And uh, I've come across uh, the first book that I came across which was about literature and and how it was in a way weaponized or maybe politicized during Cold War was this book. And then I got curious and I started doing a few, a little bit more research. And I came across a couple of other books. I don't really remember their titles, but one of them was about how CIA funded the translation of a lot of American literature into um, so into Russian or languages of Eastern European countries during Cold War. There was another book I came across which was about, again, CIA funding a lot of writers' programs and even setting up literary magazines. And if I'm not mistaken, with the co-founder of Paris Review, he was funded by CIA or he was working with CIA at some time. I don't remember exactly. And it was also the case with some philosophers as well, without knowing they were doing some work for CIA. Did, have you come across any, uh, any, any any evidence in your research well, I guess it would be good if you could talk about this aspect a little bit.
0: So this uh, this is a subfield that's that's full of enthusiasm for the obvious reason that the CIA makes anything adjacent to it seem sexy. Um, <laughs> so the uh, or sinister or it has dramatic narrative energy. Um, there's a real debate between people who write about this, just how sinister the influence was, um, seems clear. So, so, uh, Greg Barnhiesel has written great stuff about this. He has a book called Cold War Modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the definitive book is, um, Francis Stoner Saunders, um, uh, book on how the, uh, CIA funded arts and letters, um. um Joel Whitney has a book called Finks that's that's on on topic. And there's there's a real range between people who are like, look at this. This is this is an egregious example of kind of horrific American imperialism to people who are like, look at this. Here are some writers who sort of looked the other way, kept doing what they would have done anyway and had more money than they would have without the CIA, that there wasn't there was there wasn't a kind of any kind of programming or brainwashing there was just a putting money on some horses and not on other horses or or kind of picking the winners um so i'm in the agnostic middle um about about the cia stuff in general um the in the case of the university of iowa i did discover in the course of my research that the international writing program as it was getting started in the late 60s received a donation from a thing called the farfield foundation and because i'd read around in the cia scholarships um i knew that the farfield foundation was a code name for cia funding and so it was was an exciting moment for me as a young researcher finding that sheet of paper that said farfield foundation in the iowa archives that's all it said was donors for 1967 farfield foundation Um, I didn't know how much, but I published that discovery and it was sexy enough that that the article I published got some attention, I think, because of that detail. And it really upset who uh, Christopher Merrill, who who was the director of the international writing program at Iowa. um, This was in 2014. And it upset him because he was trying to bring Afghani and Iraqi poets to Iowa then in a spirit of kind of pacifism or i mean um a program that meant to foster international conversation instead of warfare um but from the country that had declared war on Iraq and Afghanistan in, in recent memory and so as he was i mean i'm i'm imputing his anger to this i mean i'm inferring it from from things that he said so as i can imagine being in his position and trying to ask Iraqi or Afghani Poets to come to the U.S. and assuring them that they're not coming as part of some covert operation. And then somebody publishes a piece saying that the program you represent in the '60s received CIA money, created it, put him in a hard spot. And so um, there's a you can there's a radio interview where you can hear him expressing his anger at me, and I'm a untenured young professor who just found something he found interesting, and I'm I'm um, is coming down hard on me. Um. So, uh, Merrill, um, revealed that the amount of funding was seventy-five hundred dollars, and I didn't find any papers that said that. So that suggests that Christopher Merrill and the International Writing Program has an archive that reflects the CIA funding that that isn't in the general collections at Iowa. Um, I'm not suspicious enough to think that it went beyond that. I actually do think it was probably a a glancing donation, Um, but there was at least some Mm -hmm. um, CIA money for the international writing there. But part of why I doubt that there was more than that 7,500 that he named the number, Merrill named the number of and that I found attested to in that sheet um, is because in that same year or a year later, there was a huge expose by the catholic magazine ramparts um that led to congressional attention toward cia funding of various arts and campus programs and as soon as that those revelations came congress pushed back against the cia mm-hmm. and the covert funding of cultural operations seems to have dried up at that point so i, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the last of it kind of the first gift to iowa was the only gift um but i I can't know i haven't Mm. i haven't found the papers that suggest either way
1: and uh just thinking about what you said i guess you're right when when the name cia comes up there is always is enthused about this well thinking about the literature has more or less always been politicized in a way starting from plato and moving all the way to modern times and and i'm originally from iran myself and i'm very critical of some writers iranian writers who write in english and they specifically write to appeal to western audience because they know there's a market out there classic example reading lolita in tehran and then the books of this sort which again came to fore i guess uh, after after um, uh, iraq and after the invasion of iraq uh comic stories again is, are, are in a way the same and, and and i guess some i don't know much about russian literature but i'm pretty sure they also use literature for their own political propaganda as well and i guess i was talking to a friend of mine and i told him about the book i don't remember the name of the author that cia funded the translations of american modernist literature i guess t.s Eliot was among them as well and i said well good on them if these books were banned in eastern europe well it's not a bad thing to read those books, why not? They're using it as a culture kind of a culture imperialism, but uh, every country does that, but some countries have more money, and yeah, they get more traction, let's say on an on an international stage, yeah uh,
0: yeah, then, I did, yeah, Virgil wrote the Aeneid for uh, um Augustus and. Uh, it um uh, it's a rah 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 pro-roman book but you can read it and you can feel the great sadness about uh conquest mm. and not so much that the emperor would have uh taken issue with it but i feel like a work of literature even produced with explicitly ideological ambitions can mirror or uh Things very different from those ambitions. I mean, can can attain a complexity that that undercuts what would seem to be. It's it's, yeah. I'm just saying what.
1: Yeah, yeah. And just another example. I uh, was reminded of the work uh, um, Nabokov's book Lolita is not translated into Farsi in Iran. But there was this. It can't be translated. I mean, if you it translate it, won't be published because the censorship won't allow it to be published. But there was this. There's this. Trans, the Iranian translator living in Canada who translated the book, published the book in Afghanistan because uh, there is this Persian-speaking community in Afghanistan, and then the book was sort of smuggled into Iran. It found its way into Iranian market, and it wasn't. I don't think it was funded by any government or things. She had some funding from some uh, cultural uh, foundations in the states. Nothing secret, of course, but I guess yeah it, it it was a great thing she did. I don't know about the quality of translation, but it's a great thing that finally the book made its way into running in some sort of a black market. People have access to the book. they can read it oh. now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Eric Bennett, thank you very, very much for talking to us about your wonderful book. And uh, for the lovers of literature, I'm sure this book has a lot uh, to teach them about the ideological uses of literature during the Cold War. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk
0: with us. I'm so glad we could have this conversation. Thank you.